Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Deborah Sheridan Brinkman. I'm Director of Technology for the Virtual College here at Miami-Dade College, and I'd like to welcome you to our 35th Miami Book Fair. Welcome to everyone in the audience. We're so, so excited to be in Miami at the Miami Book Fair for the first live episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. With uh, you can applaud for that, so we can hear you. <laughs> and we're so excited to talk about the work of the writers Emily Wilson and Madeline Miller. I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage, and I'll be moderating this panel with my co-host Whitney. Hey, I'm Whitney Terrell. I'm the author of the novel, The Good Lieutenant. All right, so on our podcast, we look at news and the current events through the lens of literature. We pretty much believe that every, we've taken out that qualifier, every issue that comes up in the news has already been written about somewhere in literature. And yet, today, we're going to be testing that idea because we're going to be talking about ancient Greek literature, stuff that's almost 3,000 years old. And we're also looking forward to talking about the role translation and retelling play in making these ancient texts relevant and accessible to us moderns. So without further ado, we'll introduce the work of our authors. Um, first, we're just going to mention Emily Wilson. Emily is a professor of classical studies and graduate chair of the program in comparative literature and literary theory at the University of Pennsylvania. And last year, Norton released her translation of Homer's The Odyssey, the first known complete translation by a woman in English. Emily has also translated Euripides and Seneca, and we're really sorry to miss her today. She got caught in weather-related travel difficulty, but with the, gate of, with the aid of our other guest, who knows Emily and her work well, we are going to talk about the Odyssey anyway. So look, yes, you can groan, that's fine, but we are thrilled and excited and hope you will welcome with a rousing round of applause Madeline Miller, who's based in Philadelphia. She is the author of the 2018 novel Circe, a novelistic retelling of Greek myth from the perspective of one of the goddesses Odysseus encounters. She teaches Latin, Greek, and Shakespeare. Oh my goodness. And has studied dramaturgy in the dramaturgy department at the Yale School of Drama. Her essays appeared in The Guardian, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, and NPR. Her 2012 novel is called The Song of Achilles. Madeline, welcome. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So we thought we would start off with readings from both books just to give you a sense of the powerful voices animating this work. And I also wanted to ask you, Madeline, if you would start off by refreshing the memories of those of us who might have first read The Odyssey in the sixth grade, which I think is true of me. Uh, what, what happens to Circe in The Odyssey? What's, what's her role? Sure. Um, and, and it was eighth grade for me. I feel like that's very common to kind of encounter it in the middle school years. Um, so Circe is just a cameo in the Odyssey. Uh, she appears 
two years into Odysseus's 10-year journey trying to get home. Um, and when he lands on her island, he has actually lost 11 out of his 12 ships, and he's seen all the men on them killed in incredibly brutal and disgusting ways, like eaten by the Cyclops um, and torn apart by cannibals. And so he arrives on her island with only one ship remaining and the men on that ship. Um, and then here they are in this lush and beautiful island. And so he sends some of his men to go, you know, see who lives here. Maybe they have something uh, we can take, or maybe they'll help us. Odysseus is basically a pirate in the Odyssey. Um, and so they go up and they're, they encounter this beautiful witch who out in her garden has tame lions and wolves lolling around. Um, and she invites them in. She doesn't tell them she's a witch. She invites them in and she gives them food and wine. She has drugged the wine. Uh, she transforms them into pigs and drives them out to her sty. Now Odysseus and some of the other men have, have hung back, and one man in particular has been watching this. He was suspicious, maybe the tame lions and wolves tipped him off. Um, and he goes running back to tell Odysseus what's happened, and so Odysseus has to come and confront her. And uh, on his way to confront her, Hermes shows up. Hermes, the great god of tricksters, the god of travelers, who is also an ancestor of Odysseus's. And he says to Odysseus, Circe is quite a powerful witch, so I'm going to give you this herb that is going to make you immune to her spells. Odysseus takes it, heads into the house. Um, Circe gives him the drugged wine, and she tries to turn him into a pig. And Odysseus doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so he pulls out his sword on her and threatens her. And she screams and falls to her knees and begs for mercy and invites him into her bed all in one breath. <laughs> we'll talk about this a little bit later, but that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write about Cersei, <laughs> because it was such a frustrating moment for me. Um, but uh, I always eventually... feel like that part of the, of the story is like the fraternity, the frat boys, like, you know, imagination part of the odyssey yes. basically it, know, well, that's how it's going to work for me you know <laughs> well exactly and you know the the cersei episode is actually narrated by odysseus he's telling the story of it to someone else so it's even more self-serving i mean it's definitely like there's this beautiful scary witch i i totally took care of her but then she wanted to sleep with me I mean, it's very you can really see odysseus it's amazing how quickly she wanted to sleep right? with me. i didn't even have to do anything exactly um <laughs> So they do eventually come to an understanding. She turns his men back from pigs into men, um, and she says to him, I see that you and your men are exhausted and grieving. You can stay on my island as long as you need to to heal. And so they, they take her up on it, and they stay for a year. And what's interesting about Circe is that at the end of that year, Odysseus actually does not want to go. It's one of the, the only places in the Odyssey where, she doesn't, where he does not want to leave. Um, and his men have to come to him and sort of say... Remember Ithaca, remember Penelope, are we going to get going here? What's happening? Um, and so he says, right, right. And he goes to Circe and says, okay, it's time for me to leave and continue going home. And she gives him all this incredibly important advice about the sirens, how to get past the sirens, how to get past skill in Charybdis. Um, she gives him really important advice on he has to go talk to a dead prophet. So she tells him how to call the shades out of the underworld. She's literally giving him the dimensions of the pit he has to dig to put the libations in to do the ritual. And so this very specific um, witchy supernatural knowledge. And um, Part of what is so interesting is she goes from this character who's very frightening and scary and, and you know, overwhelming to a very benevolent and, in fact, one of the most helpful figures that Odysseus encounters in the entire work. Thank you so much. Could you read to us a little bit from your 
version of Cersei, we would love to hear her voice. Sure. Um, so Cersei is the daughter of the sun god Helios. Um, she is a nymph. She is also the first witch in Western literature, and she's born a nymph, but she makes herself a witch. So the first very short section I'm going to read comes from towards the beginning of the novel after she has been exiled from her father's halls, and she is first discovering her witchcraft. Let me say what sorcery is not. It is not divine power which comes with a thought and a blink. It must be made and worked, planned and searched out, dug up, dried, chopped and ground, cooked, spoken over, and sung. Even after all that, it can fail, as gods do not. If my herbs are not fresh enough, if my attention falters, if my will is weak, the drafts go stale and rancid in my hands. By rights, I should never have come to witchcraft. Gods hate all toil. It is their nature. The closest we come is weaving or smithing, but these things are skills and there is no drudgery to them, since all the parts that might be unpleasant are taken away with power. The wool is dyed not with stinking vats and stirring spoons, but with a snap. There is no tedious mining. The oars leap willing from the mountain. No fingers are ever chafed. No muscles strained. Witchcraft is nothing but such drudgery. Each herb must be found in its den, harvested at its time, grubbed up from the dirt, culled and stripped, washed and prepared. It must be handled this way, then that, to find out where its power lies. Day upon patient day, you must throw out your errors and begin again. So why did I not mind? Why did none of us mind? I cannot speak for my brothers and sister, but my answer is easy. For a hundred generations I had walked the world, drowsy and dull, idle and at my ease. I left no prints. I did no deeds. Even those who had loved me a little did not care to stay. Then I learned that I could bend the world to my will as a bow is bent for an arrow. I would have done that toil a thousand times to keep such power in my hands. I thought, this is how Zeus felt when he first lifted the thunderbolt. Thank you. The second passage, oh. Oh, I okay. thought I thought you were done. No, no, I, I can be done. <laughs> Go ahead and read more. Okay, great. Um, it's very short. Uh, the second one comes from later on in the novel after she has already started turning men into pigs. And uh, the he in this passage is Odysseus. He asked me once, why pigs? We were seated before my hearth in our usual chairs. He liked the one draped in cowhide with silver inlaid in its carvings. Sometimes he would rub the scrolling absently beneath his thumb. Why not? I said. He gave me a bare smile. I mean it. I would like to know. I knew he meant it. He was not a pious man, but the seeking out of things hidden. This was his highest worship. There were answers in me. I felt them buried deep as last year's bulbs growing fat. Their roots tangled with those moments I had spent against the wall when my lions were gone 
and my spells shut up inside me. After I changed a crew, I would watch them scrabbling and crying in the sty, falling over each other, stupid with their horror. They hated it all, their newly voluptuous flesh, their delicate split trotters, their swollen bellies dragging in the earth's muck. It was a humiliation, a debasement. They were sick with longing for their hands, those appendages men use to mitigate the world. Come, I would say to them, it's not that bad. You should appreciate a pig's advantages. Mud slick and swift, they are hard to catch. Low to the ground, they cannot easily be knocked over. They are not like dogs. They do not need your love. They can thrive anywhere, on anything, scraps and trash. They look witless and dull, which lulls their enemies, but they are clever. They will remember your face. They never listened. The truth is, men make terrible pigs. <laughs> That's so great. I love your sentences and also that real reminder that Greek myth, I think it's easy to remember it as something that's so purely beautiful and not to remember the kind of down and dirty of it as well. So a little bit later, we're going to also hear from some of Emily's translation of the Odyssey. But first, we'd love to hear you talk about what got you interested in these ancient texts. You were drawn to the chance to look at these old stories in fresh ways. Um, whether it's through style and tone or by centering a character that was originally more peripheral. What got you interested in, in these myths? I mean, my, my relationship to these myths goes back quite a long time into my childhood. Um, actually, my mother used to read pieces of the Iliad and the Odyssey to me as bedtime stories, which now she thinks makes her sound really inappropriate. Um, but I think it makes her sound awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I loved it. She really knew her daughter. I can think of worse books. <laughs> Um, and and I, I actually I have a memory of her reading to me the first line of the Iliad, um, wow. which is sing goddess of the destructive rage of Achilles. And I was just completely hooked. Um, I immediately wanted to know who was this man, why was he so angry, um, and it, it just it felt like this incredibly exciting potent world that I was getting to, to touch and, and to dig into. So I continued to, to love these stories, and I took Latin as soon as I could, and then I had a wonderful Latin teacher who um, saw my obsession and offered to teach me Greek, which I am forever grateful to him for. Um, and being able to read this poetry that I loved in the original was a revelation for me. And I knew at that point that I really wanted to continue studying it, so I went off to college. Um, and I was always drawn to these viewpoints that were, that, that did feel like they had been, you know, if not silenced, then overlooked. Um, particularly female characters, um, or the character in my first novel, Patroclus, um, who is Achilles' lover, or best friend, depending on which interpretation you're going with, I go with lover. Um, but who is an incredibly important piece of the Iliad, in fact, the linchpin on which the whole plot of the Iliad turns, but has very little stage time and very little spoken, um, you know, spoken words. And so I, there was something about that that was just really fascinating to me. I sort of wanted to dig into to this world and, and find out what's the psychology of these characters. I mean, there's a great literary tradition of doing this. I think of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, right? I mean, there are many examples, but it's a wonderful, you know, approach to take a myth, for sure. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, I wonder, did you ever read the Dallaire's Book of Greek Myths? Oh, yes. I was really obsessed with that book as a kid. This is, for those of you who might not have seen this, it's a wonderful illustrated children's book that is, that was my first introduction, I think, to Greek myth. Mine was Marvel Comics, so. (laughs) (laughs) To each their own. I was just coming from a comics panel where we were talking about the intersection between comic book characters and Greek heroes, so that's there. Um, but yes, Dollars is, is amazing, and I read my book to pieces. And my mom just pointed out the other day that on the very front cover is Helios. Who knew? So maybe that all went into writing about Cersei. So Emily's translation, as well as your novel, have been getting positive critical attention for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons is this kind of notion of a feminist rereading or retelling or reboot, to use the comic book term, And I know that you reviewed Emily's translation. Could you talk a little bit about some of the choices that you all made that were attuned to gender roles? I mean, just even listening to that passage about the pigs, right? It's so carefully turned to um, notions of power dynamics. And how are these books breaking new ground? Um, Well, Emily Wilson's translation is absolutely brilliant and amazing, and I love it, and I think everyone here should read it if you have even the slightest interest in the Odyssey, and even if you don't, it's that good. Um, And one of the things that she does so well is she is just so smart about the way she's approaching this story, Um, and some of the ways that she finds sort of room for those voices. Um, There's a wonderful moment where she's talking about Penelope... um, turning a key to, to open a, a storeroom. And the word in Greek to describe her hand is, is something like thick. Uh, and people have, oftentimes translators have kind of just glossed over that because it's a very strange word to apply to a woman's hand. Um, but Emily uses, you know, draws attention to, to the fact that, of course, Penelope is a master weaver um, and is a master craftswoman would have very muscular hands um, and that that makes sense. And so she, she goes with, with this idea of muscular um, for that translation. And so just, you know, as opposed to delicate or beautiful or some of these other sort of strange glosses that are pretty far from the original, she finds a way to honor the original while also, you know, bringing out this, this thing that had been forgotten. Um, one of the things she does that I think is so brilliant and so necessary is in her treatment of the so-called 12 maids. For those of you who know the story of the Odyssey. Um, at the end of the Odyssey, Odysseus comes home finally. His house is being besieged by suitors who want to try and force Penelope into marrying one of them. Um, he slaughters all the suitors, but that's not enough for him. He then slaughters all the people who helped the suitors and all the women who were obligated to sleep with them, all the female house slaves um, who were obligated to sleep with them. And translating tradition in English has been to call those women the maids, the 12 maids. And the word in Greek is slave, female slave. 
And she uses that word to bring back. I think it's easy for us to forget that, you know, this was a slave society. We're talking about aristocrats here. Um, these women would have had absolutely no ability to give consent one way or another in this situation. And so for Odysseus to kill them for sleeping with the suitors is not only, you know, incredibly wrong, um, and, and just so, you know, cruel. Um, and outlandish, and actually he gets his son to do it, but you know he's he's the architect, he's the one who who wants it done. Um, and so so by bringing back just just by using the word, the original Greek word slave there, she's able to bring that awareness back and sort of make us think about that in a new way and sweep away this translating tradition that has been kind of soft peddling this really horrific thing that happens. That's so interesting because in your reading, you can also hear the way that, the labor of being a witch is made visible. Um, and so I wonder how much of these translation choices end up having to do with women's work. I mean, I just sort of think of, I mean, say Laurel Thatcher Ulrich even, you know, the ways in which women's work is connected to objects and maybe not documented in the same ways or not elevated, elevated in the same ways. So when you thought about that notion of, of power and work, were there documents or sources in particular that you went to to help you expand your imagination of how those things could be? Um, well, I definitely did a lot of research into into material culture and sort of how you know the process of things like weaving um, would have happened because that's a, an important piece in the Odyssey for Penelope, but also for Circe, who's also a, a, a master weaver. But I, I really wanted that work to be part of the story, um, partially because it is so hidden in in most epic literature what women do and women's lives is so hidden and there's there's this very telling thing that happens in the odyssey where penelope in order to stall these suitors who have been harassing her tells them that okay um i will marry one of you as soon as i finished weaving this shroud for my father-in-law and this is a great trick to play on them because what happens is she weaves during the day and then at night she goes and unravels it. And then the next day she weaves again and then she goes and unravels it. Um, and it takes them three years to figure it out. <laughs> and that's how much men did that's not know about women's work. That's they're in the same the sailors yeah. on Odysseus's boat. I guess men make terrible picks. Yeah. <laughs> and she actually had to be busted by one of her maidservants. They may not have figured it out ever. <laughs> So along these same lines, you said in an interview that the character uh, of Circe represents, quote-unquote, the embodiment of male anxiety about female power. Could you talk a little bit more about that, you know, and, and about what it was like to engage with some of these Greek myths from, from this character's perspective? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's so clear in, in, the, in the original that, you know, here's this character. If women have power, men are getting turned into pigs. It's this very zero-sum way of thinking, you know, that if we give power to women, men must somehow be suffering. We're taking something from them. Um, I, I think that is a, a totally wrong-headed view. I think that the more power and freedom that women have, the more power and freedom that, that men also have. Um, and what's frightening about that zero-sum way of thinking is how much we're still having that conversation today, you know, three millennia later. Um, and... In looking at the character of Circe, I mentioned she was the first witch in Western literature, and I think that's very much, you know, the witch thing really plays into that. Because I looked at all these different types of witches throughout literature, you know, you we have see, the, We're having a witch hunt right now. Yep. Right? Strange how that word keeps coming up. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the thing about, about witches that really they all have in common, there's the hag type, there's the sexy witch, that's kind of the Circe type, the foreign witch, um, the helpful witch... But really, these are all women who have an amount of power that makes society uncomfortable. 
And that's really what it means to be called a witch in literature, that you have an amount of power that, um, that particularly men around you feel uncomfortable about. And so I really wanted you know, Cersei to, to have that um, as I was looking at her. Similar to that, Emily wrote about how one of the common misunderstandings of translation, you're going to be partly vocalizing Emily here for this, the purpose of this podcast, but you guys have done a lot of events together, so you kind of can. We have. It's, it's, I'm going to be thin gruel to how she says it, but at least I've, I've, she and I have, have done a lot of events together. So, so she wrote about how one of the common, mis- uh, under, common understandings of translation is actually a gendered understanding, this idea of being faithful to the often male-authored original text. Um, I wonder if you could talk about what might be some alternative models for thinking about what makes a translation good or rethinking the line between translation and interpretation, uh, including the way a translator balances competing loyalties to, you know, like to the original text, to modern interpretations, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, well, I think I will talk about what I think makes Emily's translation so successful right. in particular, um, which is that I think she, you know, is both incredibly smart and sharp about the way she's approaching the Greek. And she acknowledges in her foreword, she talks about how, you know, all translations are interpretations. And sometimes we have this view that translations are some kind of objective thing or that we can, you know, that, that there is a, a science to it. But she acknowledges, no, these are all opinions. And I am making choices on every single line um, for how to sort of shift this way or that way. Um, and, and how to choose. And, and oftentimes, you know, those, um, those moments of, of decision are, are very complicated. And in fact, that takes me to the very first line of, of Emily's translation where she talks about, tell me about a complicated man. And she describes Odysseus as complicated. Um, the word in the Greek is polytropos, which means sort of man of many turnings, man of twists and turns. Um, and she was looking for what was the right word to put there. And there's so many different ways to go. Um, she just confessed to me in our, on stage at our most recent event in Harrisburg that one of the things that she was trying to consider ideas about turning and sort of bent in English. So she actually considered kinky at one point, which I, I almost <laughs> wish she'd gone with. Tell me about a kinky man. Um, but, uh, but she, she also, you know, ultimately went with complicated both because it implies you know Odysseus's ability to, to handle things in lots of different ways but it's also from the Latin root um, plecto which means to bend or to fold and so there's a little bit of that heritage in there she said the one thing she was worried about in terms of choosing that word is that it, it's a little bit more interior than the original Greek word is um, and you know but it was amazing to hear her talk about her process and going through that because that's one word in this huge piece and yet she spent so much time thinking about it. Um, and the, the other thing I'll say about her, about her work that I, I really love is that when you are translating from the Greek, one thing that, that happens really easily is you get a lot of bloat. So one line of Greek can easily become, you know, two or three or more lines of English. And Emily decided to commit to making the same number of lines in English as in Greek. Um, which means that this translation really moves. And I love that because, you know, Homer, was supposed to be entertainment. This was something people went to on purpose. Um, and I, I think she really <laughs> captures that. Look, they came on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and so, so it really it, it creates wonderful suspense and wonderful motion that is in the Homer um, and, and makes it very exciting. So I love that. I want to, this reminds me of a question we were going to ask you later, but while we're here, let's talk about that decision that Emily made to 
opt for iambic pentameter over the dactylic hexameter of the original Homer? Is that sort of related to what you're talking about? Sure, and I think I think that is a the wonderful a wonderful way to translate it because the truth is iambic pentameter. You know, this is that's the the rhythm that really works with English, and dactylic hexameter works great with Latin and great and great with Greek. But I think I, now I can't remember. There's some disastrous poem out there that someone tried to write in dactylic hexameter um, in English. Now I can't remember what it is. But it, it just it just does not work. It just doesn't go easily. And I think she was absolutely right to choose something that felt very natural um, because the Greek felt feels very natural. So I think that was a great choice that she made. Even though she's transforming the meter, I think she's actually you know, conveying the force of the original. I think it would be uh, great to, when we're talking so much about the power of her work to hear a little bit from it. So Whitney is going to, in our continued conjuring of Emily in her absence. My least patriarchal voice read this. Um, I'll sum it, you know, I'm from a very uh, matriarchal family, so I, I work with the embodiment of male awareness of female power, not anxiety. Um, so uh, yeah, I'll read this, I'll do my best. Um, Friends, inside someone is weaving on that massive loom and singing so the floor resounds. Perhaps a woman or a goddess, let us call her. This is Odysseus talking. They shouted out to her. She came at once, opened the shining doors and asked them in. So thinking nothing of it, in they went. Uh, Eurylicus, oh, help me with names. Eurylicus. Eurylicus alone, we'll edit that out. Eurylicus alone <laughs> remained outside, suspecting trickery. She led them in, sat them on chairs, and blended them a potion of barley, cheese, and golden honey, mixed with uh, promnian wine. She added, a, she added potent drugs to make them totally forget their home. They took and drank the mixture. Then she struck them using her magic wand and penned them in the pigsty. They were turned to pigs in body and voice and hair. Their minds remained the same. They squealed at their imprisonment, and Circe threw them some mast and cornel cherries, food like that pigs were rooting for in muddy ground. Eurylicus ran back to our black ship to tell us of the terrible disaster that happened to his friends. He tried to speak, but could not, overwhelmed by grief. His eyes were full of tears. His heart was pierced with sorrow. Astonished, we all questioned him. At last, he spoke about what happened to the others. Odysseus, we went off through the woods as you commanded. In the glade we found a beautiful tall house of polished stone. We heard a voice. A woman or a goddess was singing as she worked her loom. My friends called out to her. She opened up the doors, inviting them inside. Suspecting nothing, they followed her. But I stayed there, outside, fearing some trick. Then all at once they vanished. I sat there for a while to watch and, while to watch and wait, but none of them came back. At this... I strapped my silver-studded sword across my back, took up my bow, and told him, Take me there. He grasped my knees and begged me tearfully, No, no, my lord, please do not make me go. Let me stay here. You cannot bring them back, and you, and you will not return here if you try. Hurry, we must, try, we must escape with these men here. We have a chance to save our lives. I said, You can stay here beside the ship and eat and drink, but I will go. I must do this. I left the ship in shore, and walked, up on the cro and, walked, and walked on up, crossing the sacred glades, and I had almost reached the great house of the ench enchantress Circe when I met Hermes, carrying the, his wand of gold. He seemed an adolescent boy, the cutest age when beards first start to grow. He took my hand and said, Why have you come across these hills alone? You do not know this place, poor man. Your men were turned to pigs in Circe's house and crammed in pens. Do you, do you imagine you can set them free? You cannot. If you try that, you will not get back home. You will stay here with them, but I can help you. Here, take this antidote to keep you safe. 
when you go into Circe's house. Now I will tell you all her lethal spells and tricks. She will make you a potion mixed with poison. Its magic will not work on you because you have the herb I gave you. When she strikes you with her long wand, then draw your sharpened sword and rush at her as if you mean to kill her. She will be frightened of you and will tell you to sleep with her. Do not hold out against her. She is a goddess. If you sleep with her, she will set free your friends and save yourself. Tell her to swear an oath by all the gods that she will not plot further harm for you, or while you have your clothes off, she may hurt you, unmanning you. So listening to that passage and then hearing your version of it, I'm reminded of the fact that you refer to the kind of writing that you do as mythological realism. And in some ways, there are parts of that that just sort of they're traveling this interesting line between myth and something that feels very real. Can you talk I love that term and the way it works off of magical realism, you know, and that <laughs> kind of, and how that works. It's such a cool idea. I, I grew up reading magical realism. I loved magical realism when yeah. I was a, a, young, a young person, particularly Which specific teenager. magical realist did you like? Oh, I loved Isabella Allende. Yeah. I, read, I think I read absolutely everything um, that, that she wrote. And, uh, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And I... I think I, I really, um, it, it's interesting whenever I hear my book described as historical fiction, and I, I really appreciate that description, like, but also was that like, again? right, there, you know there's a centaur in this novel. Um, <laughs> so I, I sort of feel like I needed another, so I think of it either as mythological realism or literary adaptation, because I do take Homer's, you know, world kind of as, as my world. There are gods and monsters in Homer, so there are gods and monsters in, in my world. And, um, but I wanted it to always feel very real, because I think at its root, these ancient stories do feel very real. You know, if you take away the gods and the monsters, Odysseus's story in the Odyssey is really the story of this exhausted war veteran who is just trying to get home to his family. And, you know, that human part is something that I really wanted to honor. Um, and so Circe, as well as, you know, being a witch, is, is also the story of this woman who's born into a truly horrendous family um, who is trying to get out. And what is the cost? Is she able to get out? And can she make a life for herself that is distinct from that life? And can she come into her power? And so that's the realism part of the mythological realism. I love that scene where Helios is like, she's trying to say to her father, my eyes are kind of like yours. And he's like, well, can you do this? And he burns <laughs> these logs in the fireplace. And then she, she tries the rest of the day to do it. She can't. That kind of that. Speaking of tough families, yeah. so. <laughs> yes, and you know the ancient Greek gods. Um, basically, today we would call them sociopathic narcissists. <laughs> they are. They only care about themselves and and their own interests. And if you cross them, they will you know punish you and your children and your children's children. Um, and so you know, understandably, Cersei feels a little alienated from that. So when you talk about adaptation. Uh, earlier we were listening to uh, a panel in which Curtis Sittenfeld was talking about her forthcoming book, and which is based on a premise that basically, I'm shortening this dramatically, but Hillary Clinton in her life made a different choice than she actually did. Hmm. So she, she sort of takes a different fork, and then she plays out that scenario. And this is the book that she's working on. And, and I just wonder, were you tempted? You know, in what ways were you tempted to not only enter the imaginative spaces left by Cersei's role on sort of the periphery Quote unquote, of the real story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, her real story. <laughs> with um with just sort of giving her power that she didn't 
have in the original? Were you ever just tempted to, at what points did you have to decide? Teleportation. Yeah. yeah, I mean, <laughs> why? You know, let her have her revenge. You know, I think sometimes that's so, t- it is so tempting. It, it's true. Um, and I, you know, I, I wanted, but I, I really wanted to stay true to how difficult life was um, for women in the ancient world, both the actual ancient world and the mythological ancient world. And so along with exploring Circe, I sort of wanted there to be these other women who were, who were also struggling with that. But there were things I, I changed um, that I, I did push back against the story. Circe does not kneel in my version of the novel, and that felt really important to me. That felt like, okay, that's the male heroic tradition. That's Odysseus, you know, uh, talking himself up. What would that, what would that moment look like? And so I tried to find moments of, of, where I, I was pushing back and sort of taking away that very self-serving narrative about this is the hero's journey and everyone else has to get out of the way and serve his story. Um, and one of the, the biggest things I pushed back against actually was, was the ending. So there are four major myths I was drawing on for Circe and everything else was me making it up. Um, but one of, the, one of those four myths is from the Telegony. Um, which is a lost epic. The Iliad and the Odyssey were the most famous of the ancient epics, and they're the ones that have survived, but there were others that we have in fragmentary form or in summaries. And in the Telegony, um, there's a few spoilers here, but it is a 3,000-year-old story, so I don't know if that counts. Um, but in the Telegony, Circe has a son with Odysseus whose name is Telegonus, and he grows up with Circe, and he goes off to find his father, um, and some stuff happens, and he eventually brings... Penelope, Odysseus's wife, and Telemachus, Odysseus's son with Penelope, back to the island of Aiaia to meet his mother, Circe. So, you know, the, all that is, happens in my novel. Um, but then what happens in the original myth, and this is not a spoiler because I didn't do it, um, what happens in the original myth is that Circe marries Telemachus, and Penelope marries Telegonus. There's like a sun swap thing that happens, and then Circe makes them all immortal. And going back to mythological realism, that felt incredibly unrealistic to me um, and really unsatisfying as an end to to their story. Um, And so this was one of those moments where with Penelope, actually, I think I made that choice because one of the things that's so frustrating about Penelope in the Odyssey about the the character is that she's so defined by who she's going to marry. Her whole story is, is she going to choose one of these suitors or is she going to stay faithful, going back to staying faithful? Um, You know, what's she going to do? And I really wanted her story to end in a way that was not about who she was married to. It was not about what man she was attached to, but about herself. Um, So that was one of those moments where I did, I felt like, I'm gonna I'm gonna change this. That was fun, probably. <laughs> <laughs> it was very liberating. You're like, uh, so shifting gears uh, a little into talking about some connections between y- your work and current events, and and Emily's, and also the Odyssey and current events. You know, I'm sure you know xenophobia seems to be on the rise, not just here but abroad. There's the Brexit vote, the Muslim travel ban, Trump sending troops to the border. We've done episodes of the show on family separation, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and you can look at our back issues to find those. But Emily, in an essay for Literary Hub, which is our parent publication, uh, talked about what the Odyssey can tell us about what it means to be hospitable and about the responsibilities we have to strangers and foreigners, which is doing what our podcast does, talking about literature and how it relates to the news. You know, How does that stuff come into play in your work? Um, well, I, I definitely wanted to look at that a little bit in, in the character of Medea, um, and Medea comes, she's the other great witch of ancient literature, and she's actually, in the mythology, Circe's niece. Um, and there is an episode where they meet that comes right out of the ancient mythology, but she is one of these foreign witches. 
Um, and it's sort of like her foreignness and her witchcraft kind of combined to be the same thing. Oh, she's creepy and scary because she's foreign, and also she's a witch, so of course she's, you know, it's kind of, it all becomes one thing. Um, and, and I wanted sort of Cersei to be saying that to her, you know, watch out when you go back into society. If you try and go back with Jason to Greece, they're not going to welcome you. You know, you're not from Greece, and you're not going because the ancient Greeks were incredibly xenophobic, um, even though they prized hospitality so much. And so it, it's a really interesting tension there, and I and I wanted to sort of explore that of, of what is going to happen to Medea. And as it turns out, for those who know her story, her story ends disastrously. Um, she is not able to go be part of Greek society. She is permanently kept out as a... Um, as an outsider, which then she reacts to strongly. <laughs> um, so we're going to ask one last question, and then we would love to hear questions from the audience as well, so if you, if you have those. Um, on a recent post-Kavanaugh episode of the podcast, we talked with the writer Idra Novi, who is also a translator, about a Paris Review essay called the Silence of Sexual Assault in Literature, where she describes some of the strategies that writers use to represent sexual trauma and abuse. And, of course, this comes into play in your book. Um, and we were wondering if you could talk about how your novel grapples with sexual violence, especially in terms of the motivation for Cersei. Sure. Um, so one of the things that I think is shocking when you go back and, and you read these Greek myths, having encountered them in Dolaire's, um, is just how many of them revolve around sexual violence and rape. I mean, just really a startling, frightening number. Um, and in particular, the stories of nymphs are often about that, that in the ancient world, nymphs were pawns or they were prey. And, you know, they are the ones who are being chased by Zeus, and, and it's presented, you know, in Ovid, um, if you're looking at the, the Daphne and Apollo, the famous Daphne and Apollo, and Apollo's chasing Daphne, and you know, there's, it's almost like a comedic, a lightly comedic tone that's happening, and oh, her hair gets all messed up because she's running so fast, and she looks even prettier, she's running away, it's like, oh, read, just reading that, all, you know, it really hits you. Um, and so I, I wanted that to be a part of, of the world, and, and a very real threat that Cersei and other women in that world have to contend with. Um, and, you know, I mean, one of Greek the, myth is really about nothing other than sexual assault, yes. it seems like. Yes, you know, yes. That's it's, what it's, it is. It's really, it's really shocking. I mean, I... Um, Odd that we would have our, our entire culture founded on this uh, particular myth structure and, and get democracy from Greece and yeah. then also have problems with sexual assault <laughs> in our current uh, environment. I wonder why that happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, and... You know, I, I think what's interesting is that all these stories were told, you know, with the exception of Sappho's work, all these stories were composed and told by men. Um, and that if there were women telling these stories, they have not really survived and, and we don't have them, or they were telling them to each other and it wasn't recorded. And so that's also interesting, too, is that all these stories are being, yeah. are being told by, by male authors. So... Um, and that ends up being part of why Cersei is turning men to pigs, which is, I think is one of the central mysteries about her character in the Odyssey. Here is Odysseus, the most curious man alive, and he doesn't ask her why she's turning men to pigs. 
you know, it's just presented as, oh, she's evil or she's, you know, she's capricious, who knows. But I believe that people do things for reasons. And so part of what I wanted to do when I, I was looking at Cersei is sort of find out what, what might be a reason that would lead someone to do something like that. So we would love for people to come up and ask questions if they like. And while we're waiting for you to do so, we'll tell you how to find the podcast because in a couple weeks we'll have this up. We come out every two weeks. The name of the show is Fiction Slash Non Slash Fiction. So if you type that with the slash into it in the search bar of any podcast app, you'll be able to subscribe to the show. You can also find us on LidHub's main page, which is at lidhub.com under the news tab. Come forward. Hi, uh, my name is Chris. I'm a bookseller here at the local indie bookstore. Uh, thank you for being here. Um, I'm having a lot of fun. And uh, I have a question sort of to tie it into um, the Song of Achilles a little bit. Um, how did writing the Song of Achilles inform your writing, Circe? Because, um, you know, there's like some lots of connective tissue. Um, and so like from a writerly perspective, um, because, you know, I'm, we're trying our best out here. Like, how, how did one inform the other? Sure. Um, and first of all, thank you for being part of an independent bookstore. You make the world go round for Woo! readers and writers. So, thank you. Buy books. <laughs> um, so, uh, Song of Achilles, actually, I, I talked about changing things in, in Circe and, and feeling free. Um, I felt much more anxious about that when I was working on Song of Achilles. I actually, the 10 years it took me to write Song of Achilles, I did not tell any of my classics peers or any of my mentors what I was doing. First of all, um, notice that she said 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it is working hard for a long period of time is helpful. Making writing good. <laughs> yes, and that, that was how long the Trojan War lasted. That was not intentional, <laughs> but that is how long it took. Um, and uh, so I think I, I worked through a lot of those issues with Song of Achilles and my fear of, you know, can I change this? Is this blasphemy? Are the classics police going to come and take me away? You know, are, are my mentors going to hate me? Um, and it also helped me work through sort of how I, um, you know, dealt with certain, certain blocks. And, you know, one of the things that I found is incredibly helpful for me is reading secondary sources on the material. That when I get stuck, I go and I read scholars arguing about Homer. And that is incredibly inspiring to me. There's always something to agree with or disagree with or some new point that I haven't noticed. And so sort of realizing that, that reading all that secondary literature was, was really important and helpful. Everybody gets inspired in their own way. <laughs> that sounds really thrilling. <laughs> I, I realize, yeah. I'm not, <laughs> it's, it's nerd heaven, pretty much. Um, <laughs> But, uh, so, so that was a piece of so that's it. That's like your version. I'm sorry. I just, I like that idea. That's your version of what the rest of my students normally do, which is go to Starbucks and drink coffee and think dreamily and stare out the window. You go and read secondary scholars or scholars arguing over Homer. It's I think true. yours is probably a better way. No, well, I don't know. Maybe not as fun as cocktail parties. Um, but, uh, so, so that, that was helpful, sort of learning how I worked with these things and, and feeling comfortable changing it. Um, it was also, but in some ways I, I feel like they're a little bit opposites, that with Song of Achilles I was taking an epic story and I was telling it from an intimate and lyric perspective. 
Um, and, you know, I was taking epic story and, and really making it a love story, foregrounding a love story in it. Whereas with Circe, I was taking a woman's life, which has traditionally not been considered important enough for epic, and setting it at the center of an epic story with epic scope. So I feel like they, they are similar. And of course, Odysseus is in both of them. And it was really fun to draw the thread of that character through. You know, and when Circe meets him, he's older. He has seen a lot of horror. Um, he's in a very different, you know, more broken place, I think, than, than the Odysseus we see in Song of Achilles. So there definitely was, was a lot of connective tissue. And then the last piece of connective tissue is Thetis, Achilles' mother. Um, also a nymph. Uh, also one of these characters who has wants to do something. She wants to save her son's life. And she spends the whole, you know, Iliad and the whole Song of Achilles trying to save her son's life. And she can't do it. And, you know, the, what that would be like to be this goddess, theoretically have all this power, but actually have no power or ability to, to change anything in the world. Um, so I think there is a straight line from Thetis to Circe also. Sure. Um, hello, I'm Helen. I just wanted to thank you for writing such wonderful books. And I wanted to ask, because both Song of Achilles and Circe have perspectives of characters you don't really get a voice from in their original uh, stories. So I wanted to know, was it hard or difficult to find their voices? And like, how long did it take to find these voices for these characters? Yes, um, and it was hard. And that's part of the 10 years, actually. <laughs> um, is that the, the first five years of both of these were just me writing and throwing away and writing and throwing away and really trying to hear that character's voice. Um, I have a background in theater, and it's really important for me to feel like I am fully inhabiting the character. I can really hear that. I don't ever want to be reaching um, and trying to, you know, artificially create that voice. It has to really flow. Um, and so around year five, I had a uh, sort of a, a crisis in both novels <laughs> um, where I had to put them aside and go do something else. And I sort of thought, well, I guess I can't do this. Uh, but then I was able to, by working on something else and actually in in the case of Song of Achilles, I went and took a, a writing workshop. Um, and my wonderful teacher, Jim Miller, is there in the audience, so I'm going to point him out there. Um, and being in his class was really inspiring and exciting, and being around other writers and reading other writers. And um, I had said to Jim Miller at some point, I'm, you know, I'm really worried that, uh, I'm really worried that writing is self-indulgent. And Jim said, writing is self-indulgent, just get over it. Um, <laughs> And so that, that was really freeing for me. <laughs> um, and, and the voice, but, but the voice thing in particular was something that just, it was, it was a lot of, of trial and error, and it, it was an ear thing. Um, and when I finally got it, I got it all together. You know, that it, it kind of came in a rush, that I had the first line of the Song of Achilles, my father was a king and the son of kings, and then I could just go from there. And it was the same thing with Circe, that there was five years of trying and trying and trying, and then I got the first line, and I could go. And so it's something, something about that. And it's a little bit of a mysterious process. Like, I can look back now and say that with Cersei's voice, I wanted um, a very direct and authentic and, and blunt voice, but also with this weird kind of formality um, and this strange, almost otherworldliness, alien quality to it. But I can articulate that now, but at the time I had no idea. <laughs> you know, I just had to kind of organically feel my way to it. My question really has to do with uh what did the average Greek take away from, I assume, listening to someone narrating this story? Is that correct? Well, what might be some of the, what, what the average Greek was left with after listening to this? Um, 
I think it's impossible to know what the average Greek was like. So I think that's a, that's a really hard, in a sense, question, because I think depending on what class you were and depending on where you were and depending on you know, whether you were a man or a woman, you would have taken away you know, some different things. Um, one of the things that I, I love in the Iliad is book two is the catalog of ships where it says all the people who came to Troy, all the Greek kings and princes and captains and the ships and who they brought with them. Um, and it's kind of boring today. <laughs> but, you know, in the ancient world, it would have been very exciting. That's my, you know, that's my hometown. That's us. That was us going, you know, depending on, on where you were. And so I, I think um, what we know is that, is that these poems were incredibly dear uh, to the ancient Greeks as a whole, and you know, then later to the Romans, that they came out of oral tradition, and so that they were things that were really passed down. Um, they were not just for the elite; they were really for everyone. That you know, we. Um, I think that that one thing I see in particular, and again in the Iliad, is how Homer does not pull any punches on how violent it is, that if you are reading the Iliad in the original Greek, you are learning all the vocabulary for the internal organs. Because it is, you know, and then the spleen and the liver and his lungs and his brains exploded and his teeth caved in and it's really, you see what war does to men's bodies in excruciating, gory detail. And so people often talk about the Iliad as a, as a poem about the glory of war. I don't think it's about the glory of war at all. I think it's pretty impossible to think that, you know, the ancients would have been seeing that and thinking like, yes, I want to go out and fight, you know, that it's very sobering. I thought uh, the Odyssey could be considered the first travelogue. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Hi, my name is Jane, and my favorite goddess is Athena, and my favorite hero is Odysseus. So it was really fun for me to see them put in a light that wasn't necessarily like good or benevolent. So I, my question for you is, do you think any of the heroes or gods or goddesses were actually good? Did that play a role in picking your favorite god or goddess or hero? Um, sure, that's a great question. I'm going to take an Emily Wilson moment here and say that one of the things that inspired her, she got to play Athena in middle school, I think, in a play. Um, uh, and she and I were just talking about this uh, in Harrisburg when we had our, our most recent event together, and she was saying about how much she loved Athena, but also she thinks she's very problematic as a feminist icon. <laughs> um, and I would agree with that. Uh, I, I think that when we talk about heroes today, we're often talking about people who are moral exemplars, people who we see as virtuous. The ancients did not see heroes that way at all. Um, Achilles and Odysseus are, you know, they make terrible decisions. They rain destruction down on the people around them. One sort of way to translate Achilles' name is grief to the people. <laughs> Odysseus's name is based in the word for, um, in the verb to hate. So, you know, these were, these were characters who caused a lot of problems for the people around them and who were not, you know, really heroic. They were proud, they were touchy, they were angry. Um, Odysseus beats his men, you know, at the drop of a hat. He has a really bad temper. And, and so, but I think that that is part of what makes them so fascinating, is that they are so complex. They're not just, you know, these good guys. They are, they, they make really terrible mistakes and, and they have regrets and they really blow it and you know they have 
um, all kinds of things that looking at, we can say, what are you doing? Don't do that. You know, and, and I think that that is part of what makes it so gripping. Um, so I like that part. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much. Um, we have to end there, but um, I know. Um, but thank you so much for the audience, their wonderful questions, and Madeline for your amazing answers. Thank you. where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the News tab. We want to thank the Miami Book Fair and especially Lisa Pally for setting us up. And thanks also to Lit Hub's Justin Alvarez for making our trip possible. In Whitney's reading from Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, he says that Odysseus is speaking. While technically true, he asked me to clarify that the words you hear in that reading come from one of his sailors, as related by Odysseus. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on the show page, as well as on Facebook at FNF Pod and on Twitter at FNF Talk. We also invite you to follow us on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast, where we curate photos of some of our guests' favorite writing spaces. Thanks for listening. Happy reading.